This morning, we are uh, beginning a new series, a Christmas series. You can see it's very Christmassy, uh, thanks to those who came and helped uh, decorate. We had a great day yesterday, making popcorn strings and cranberry strings and all sorts of other strings, and, um, and now it's Christmas. So uh, our, our series is called Christmas Carols. Uh, we are going to be in the book of Luke. Uh, we're going to be looking through some of the, uh, the songs that are there in Luke. And in preparation for our message today, um, oh, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one. There's some on your way in, if ever you forget yours. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55. Uh, But as I was preparing, I was thinking a bit about Christmas carols. And a a story came to mind uh, in my life. I'm not sure if this was the case for you, but I was always in choir in elementary school. I may be surprised to hear that, but I, I was in choir I love singing, and I remember one time, uh, we were getting ready for the Christmas concert, and there was a friend of mine who was also always in choir, and he surprised me one day because after rehearsal, he said, you know, I really hate singing Christmas carols. And I was kind of taken aback, because who hates Christmas carols? And I said, why do you you hate them? He said, well, look, they're just about like God and Jesus and angels and stuff, and not everyone believes that. I, I don't believe that, so why do we have to sing all these songs at Christmas time about that stuff? Now, I wasn't a Christian at the time, but I sort of felt like he was overreacting because I didn't believe that at the time, but I, I still liked singing. And so I kind of said, look, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter what you believe. You just sing it. It feels Christmassy. Hark the Herald Angels Sing, A Little Town of Bethlehem. That feels good. Why do you have to be so difficult? He was like that sometimes. <clears throat> what I've noticed, though, is that uh, this mindset that uh, it's, it's good to to celebrate, and you don't have to really worry too much about what it means, um, a lot of the newer carols are kind of written in that mindset. In fact, there are many carols that are just celebrating for celebrating's sake. Uh, Here's one example. Uh, I love this carol. Uh, It's the most wonderful time of the year. You know the song? I'm just going to read to you a few of the lyrics. You'll see them up there. Um, Here's what it says. There'll be parties for hosting, marshmallows for toasting, and caroling out in the snow. There'll be scary ghost stories, which is a little bit, I don't know what, I don't remember that, (laughs) and tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. It's the most wonderful time of the year. There'll be much mistletoeing, which I didn't know was a verb, but it is, and hearts will be glowing. When loved ones are near, it's the most wonderful time, wonderful time, it's the most wonderful time of the year, which kind of gives you the impression that it's the most wonderful time of the year because we get together and have a wonderful time. We're not really sure why. It doesn't really matter. We're just going to celebrate us getting together, and we did it last year and the year before, and that's the whole reason. We, we just celebrate, and there doesn't have to be a reason anymore. You might be saying, Matt, look, it's, it's the beginning of the season, okay? I, I, I like Christmas carols. Don't be down on Christmas carols. I got my radio tuned to 103.5. It's all Christmas carols all the time. Hey, that, that's great. I'm with you. I love singing songs, too. Christmas songs are great, but I do think that my, my friend back in elementary school had a bit of a, a point. Not that we shouldn't sing Christmas carols in schools, but that true carols, real Christmas carols, are ones that celebrate something. And not just something good, like getting together as a family, that, that's, that's fine, but something great, something grand even, something that, that if you're a Christian expresses some of the deepest held beliefs that you have, and so you're able to sing with genuine joy out of the conviction of your heart, not, not just because it sounds Christmassy. Well, that's the idea behind our Christmas series. 
We are going to look at some uh, genuine Christmas carols. You may not realize this, but there are actually four songs that people in the Christmas story sing in the book of Luke. And so we're going to look at these songs, these uh, people that we might know from hearing the Christmas story, but see what it is that they're singing about. Uh, we're going to look at Mary's song, then Zechariah, then Simeon, uh, and then back to the angel song for Christmas Eve. So that's sort of the month of, of December. And this morning, we have Mary's song. And what we're going to find is a song of praise, a song of wor- worship as she sings about her God, about what he's done, and what he's doing right now in her life. So... With that in mind, I'm going to read to you Mary's song, and um, it won't be up on the screen yet, but after we'll have uh, some of the verses up there, I encourage you just to listen or follow along. This is God's word to us this morning. Starting in verse 46, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Let's pause for a moment of prayer. Lord, we are thankful. I'm thankful for your word, Lord. I'm thankful, God, that in it, uh, we know, Lord, that we will find truth. Uh, Lord, we will find a greater understanding of you and, God, a greater understanding of ourselves. And I pray, God, that that would be the case this morning. Help us, Lord, to truly understand what it is that Mary was singing about and, God, how that applies to our lives. And I pray, Lord, you'd help me to speak words of truth in accordance with your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to look at this uh, song from two different angles. Firstly, we're going to look at Mary, the one who sings the song, and then we're going to look at the song itself. We're going to ask two questions. One, why does Mary sing the song? And secondly, what is she singing about? So first question, why does Mary sing? And the answer that we're going to find is that she sings to worship her God. Uh, You see in the first couple of verses that she really is singing from a very personal point of view. Uh, Verse 46 and 47, she says, My soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So she doesn't just sing because she likes to celebrate, or doesn't just celebrate because it it seems, it feels good. She actually has some reasons to celebrate. Um, This song is often called the Magnificat, which is Latin for uh, to, to magnify, to make much of. And that's what we find her doing here. She's magnifying God, which is, actually, which is actually kind of interesting if you consider her situation. Right? If you know the story, you probably know the Christmas story, uh, she's not in the easiest of situations when she sings this song. Right? Just a few weeks ago from when she sings, um, an angel has vi- had visited her. And the angel had news from God. Uh, the angel said that she was going to have a baby. That the baby would be conceived by the Spirit of God. And that the baby would be the Son of God. And all of this while she was already engaged to Joseph. And so this was a very, very difficult situation for her. Um, Her response at the time was amazingly humble and and faithful and obedient. Look at what she says in response to the angel. She says simply this, uh, Luke 1.38, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Man, that's that's a very faithful response. It seems there that she is... She is able to respond um, as, you would, as you would hope when God speaks to you. 
but this is still, this is still an impossible situation. I mean, pregnancy obviously is not something you can hide. No one's going to believe her. What she's going to say to, to Joseph, what she's, she's going to say to her family, this puts in jeopardy all of her future plans. Her, her economic stability for the rest of her life is tied to marrying someone. And now that's thrown in jeopardy. Her social status is threatened. Her very life is threatened because the penalty for adultery is stoning. So if we were to look at this situation, we would probably say, you know, this is something that if, if you're really faithful, I mean, if you really trust God, you could probably endure this situation, right? You could, you could make it through. But I don't think any one of us would be like, this is the point where I'm going to burst into song. This is where I'm going to praise and sing about the wonders of God because God is the one who put her in this situation. So why, do, why does she sing? And secondly, why does she sing at this moment? Like if you were going to make a movie, wouldn't you think that she would sing when the angel appeared? Right? The angel's there. There's light shining down from heaven and the climax. She bursts into song. It'd be a great climax for a scene. She doesn't do that. She sings weeks later. So where does she sing? What's the circumstances? Um, if, you look in, if you have your Bible in front of you, you'll see that she has just arrived at her cousin Elizabeth's house. Right? She, she went to visit Elizabeth. And just as she walks through the door is when she bursts into song. So you have to ask, what just happened? Why is she singing right now? Well, there are three things that happen as Mary enters Elizabeth's house. Three things that are very significant for her. Number one, she sees that Elizabeth is pregnant. This is her cousin Elizabeth who's in her 70s. And this is significant because the angel told Mary, hey, your cousin Elizabeth is by, by the power of God going to conceive and have a child in her old age. And so when Mary comes to the door and sees that, it's a point of confirmation for her. Oh, that, that actually happened. Secondly, the baby inside of Elizabeth, that's John the Baptist in utero, he jumps for joy as Mary enters the room. And we know this because the third thing that happens is that Elizabeth, uh, by the, inspired by God, speaks words of blessing and confirmation to Mary. Here's what Elizabeth says. Uh, she says, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. See, Mary hasn't told Elizabeth anything yet. She just got there. And she's early on in her pregnancy. She wasn't showing. Elizabeth knows these things because God has revealed them to her. And that's at this moment, at this moment when God graciously confirms the truths that were spoken by the angel, this is where Mary bursts into song. Now notice, it's not because things got easier. Right? Her situation is exactly the same but the reason for her rejoicing is because God has revealed himself to her yet again. That, that she's, she's seen confirmation that what he said would happen is going to happen, and then she, she knows she can trust him. See, Mary instinctively worships God because her underlying attitude is one of humility and one of trust. She sees herself in relationship to God in an accurate way, in a biblical way. Let me show you uh, where we see this. Uh, verse 48, she says, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Have you ever, have you ever stopped to listen to the way that you uh, talk about yourself? Uh, either, either in your head, you know we all have this kind of running monologue of, 
what we're doing and how people are interacting with us. Sometimes, though, we, we, people ask us, you know, how are you doing? What's going on? And we actually verbalize, you know, how we see ourselves at that moment. Sometimes we say, oh, right now I'm really busy. I'm overwhelmed. Sometimes I'm, I feel overlooked. If it's someone close to us asking us, I, I feel underappreciated at work, maybe misunderstood. See, the words that we say about ourselves are oftentimes very revealing. They, they, they reveal what we think about ourselves in relationship to what's going on around us. See, Mary could have opened her mouth and found on her lips words filled with the injustices of God, at the unfairness of the situation. Right? She could have opened her mouth and, and it would have been a song of God. This is, this is ridiculous. God, I'm only 14 or 15. I've been faithful all my life. I've never, you know, gone against your commands. I've never been with a man. I've never broken your, your rules. And now you bring this into my life? This is unfair. You're unfair. But that's not what she does. Look at the words she uses again. She, she calls herself humble, servant, and blessed. And she says of God, he is mighty, he is holy, that is pure and perfect. He is the doer of great things. Now these words, they're not just chosen randomly. It's not just, you know, you're writing a song, good song lyrics, it's not that. These are words that are actually references to the Old Testament. All throughout Mary's song, filled, teeming with allusions and references to things that God has actually done in the history of his people. We're going to look at all those things in a moment, but just before we get there, let's make the, it's important to make the connection. Mary's heart of worship is connected to her understanding of God through his word. Do you see that? That, that when she speaks, scripture pours out of her because it was in her to begin with. And at this difficult time, she knows who God is. She knows his character. Now, this is amazing because, I mean, Mary, she's a simple girl. She's from a small town. Uh, it, she was in the fields, probably helping her family, right? Making ends meet. Uh, she didn't go to Christian school. She didn't go to Sunday school or seminary or anything like that. So how is it that, that in this time of crisis, Mary would have this, this depth of knowledge? And the answer has to be that there, are, there were people in her life that were teaching her who God is. They were a faithful Jewish family that in her home and in her own life, she was pursuing God through the scriptures, through the Torah, through all of the, the tales of who God is, what he's done. This is because her parents were active and because she was intentional. This is how she was able to worship God in this, in this difficult time. Now imagine though, if, if there were a family that was not really invested in the things of God. Imagine if they were kind of a nominal Jewish family. They would go for the festivals and maybe to temple here and there. But at home, they weren't really delving into the scriptures. And she personally, she hadn't really, you know, found interest in the things of God. Do you think there would have been worship on her lips in a time like this? Or would she have been immediately filled with frustration and complaint? Would she have spoken to God about how this was completely unfair and he was ruining all the plans that she had for her life? Because he was. He was changing everything. You see, the pressures of life, they always squeeze out of us what's already there. And for Mary, she's able to worship at this time because a foundation had been laid, one rooted in the, the character of God, the actions of God, so that when this extreme situation came, she was able to recognize his hand. She was able to stand firm because of her, her faith in him. She actually knew him, and so she worshiped him naturally. And so a question for us, I think, in light of just the song itself and how she sings it, 
How would your reactions to life be different if you knew God better through his word? How much more peace, how much more joy and stability would there be if as you interacted with the circumstances of your life, the people in your life, if you really knew God at a deeper level? Here we see a young woman who, she worships her God freely, joyfully, even in one of the most difficult times in her life. This is a song of worship by a young girl who loves God, who knows him. That's the first thing. Why does Mary sing? To worship her God. Secondly, what does Mary sing about? Well, she sings about the mercy of God. If you look at the next uh, few verses, they're kind of bookended. Verse 50 and verse 54 both mention God's mercy. Uh, Verse 50 says, And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Verse 54, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. So, what is mercy? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. A warning for a speeding ticket, that's mercy. A second chance at uh, someone, maybe that happened this week. Uh, <clears throat> a second chance at work, right? When you, you drop the ball on something big, that, that's mercy. Now, there's usually two parts to mercy. There kind of needs to be. Firstly, uh, mercy is given by someone generally in authority, someone over you, someone who has the power to give you a consequence or discipline for something wrong you've done. Instead of that, they uh, are gracious towards you. They, They have favor towards you, and so they don't give you that consequence that you rightly deserve. But the second part to mercy is that you need to be able to receive it. And for that, you need to understand that you are in the wrong. I thought of a story just to help uh, illustrate this, to make sure we understand this. I want you to imagine that it's Christmas Eve. I know, already, Christmas illustration. So, Christmas Eve, and, um, and there's a man who is late for something, and so he's going kind of fast down the freeway. And a police officer notices him, uh, radars, you know, radar guns him, and so takes off after him, puts on the lights. And the police officer, because it's Christmas Eve, is, is you know, I'm, I'm just going to give this guy a warning. Right? I don't want to, it's Christmas Eve, I'm going to pull him over, he's going too fast. So the cars pull over, and uh, as the police officer gets out of the cruiser and approaches, though, the man, the window's down, and when uh, the police officer gets up to uh, the window, the man is, is very upset. And even before the police officer can speak, he says, are you kidding me? It's Christmas Eve, you have nothing better to do than to pull over people, ruin their Christmas Eve? I can't believe this. You think he's going to get a warning? No. But this is a sermon illustration about mercy. So what happens is that the police officer is actually filled still with mercy, even though the guy's being very rude. And so the police officer says, look, look, sir, I I just want to give you a warning. I just want to, and the guy is still irate. A warning? A warning for what? I wasn't going that fast. You know who needs a warning? You need a warning. I want your badge number. They get into it. And then the man, amazingly, he's lost his mind. He leaves the scene. He takes off. The police officer is just stunned but doesn't take off after him on the wet streets, instead looks up his address and goes to meet him at his house. And while the police officer is waiting there, he does a bit of checking. You know, finds out, finds out this guy, he's, he's in a tough spot. He's been in and out of the court system, in and out of the family system, and so amazingly still decides, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to arrest him. I'm just going to talk to him and leave it at that. Again, merciful intentions. The guy gets home, pulls into the driveway, and looks over the police officers walking across the grass to to explain his intentions, to talk with him, he flips out again. He, he, he can't believe, you came to my house on Christmas Eve? I got presents for my kids? I can't believe this. Get off my lawn, you're trespassing. Pushes the police officer. By that point, another cruiser's pulled up. They tackle him, arrest him, and he's in jail for Christmas Eve. <clears throat> so what's my point? The point is simply this. You can never earn mercy, 
but you can make it very, very difficult to receive it. If you harden your heart, it will be near impossible for you to actually receive the mercy that someone intends to give you. This guy, if he would have just shut up, if he would just, can I say that in a sermon? If he would have just been silenced. I'm going to hear that from my kids later. <clears throat> if he would just be quiet and not say anything, he would have been blessed. He would, it would have been mercy that he received, but he couldn't do it because of the hardness of his heart. And that's what we see here in our text. Verse 50 says that his mercy, God's mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Now to fear God means you acknowledge his superiority and his authority. It means you recognize that God is the rightful judge and that you as a sinner, you are in a very vulnerable situation. But people who are proud towards God, they don't see it that way. In fact, they've got a running list of ways that they feel like God has done them a disservice. They've got a list of grievances if they were ever in the presence of God that they would be, they would be eager to tell God how he had not served them well, how they had not got what they deserved. And this hardness of heart, this pride, keeps them from receiving the mercy of God. So what does God do? Does he just put them in jail? Does he just leave them to their own devices, say, fine, you deal with your own sin your way? What we find amazingly is that God is still merciful to the proud. That's what Mary is singing about. The mercies of God throughout human history, the patient, intentional actions of God that are for both the humble and the proud alike. What we're going to see, though, in these next couple of verses is, is it's interesting, God's, God's mercy oftentimes looks like confrontation. In fact, it's confrontational but merciful at the same time. So look at these next few verses. There are four uh, couplets describing the merciful actions of God. Uh, some of them deal with God's mercy to the humble, and some of them deal with God's mercy to the proud. This is verses uh, 51 to 54. I'm going to read them again. They're up on the screen. It says, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Now, as you see there, I think the parts of confrontation are fairly clear. Right? We see what God does. He intentionally scatters the proud. He brings down the mighty. And he, he doesn't help the rich. He sends them away empty. These are all still historical references to the activities of God uh, throughout the Old Testament. Uh, verse 51, for example, is a reference to the Tower of Babel. If you remember that story, back in ancient times, the people of God were filled with pride. They said, we're going to build a tower to show our greatness. And what is God's response? He scatters them to the four corners of the globe. Uh, verse 52 talks about dethroning uh, proud kings, mighty kings. Uh, there are many times that God does that. Probably Pharaoh is the most famous time back in the story of Exodus. And you might say, though, as you, if you know those stories and you look at this text, you know, Matt, it doesn't seem like we're talking about mercy here. It kind of feels like we're talking about justice. Right? I mean, I, I can see in the text where God is merciful to the humble. Right? It says that he fills the hungry. He helps the servant. He exalts the humble. Those people who are sinful and realize it, God is, God is gracious and merciful. They receive it. That makes sense. But the proud, they're getting hammered. I mean, every time, scattering, bringing them down. Are you sure this isn't judgment? Because it, it seems like judgment. And the answer is that uh, it is in part judgment. But what is God's end goal? Is it simply to judge those in their sin or does he have gracious um, desires, merciful desires? And in fact, we find that to be the case. 
to show this, to, to make this clear, we're going to look at one of the references. So when God uh, speaks about bringing down the mighty from their thrones, one of the kings he did that to is King Nebuchadnezzar. So we're going to look back uh, to Daniel. You don't have to turn back there. I'll tell a bit of the story, put a few verses up. But uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, if you remember, he's king of Babylon. And this was a time in the history of Israel where actually Babylon had conquered Jerusalem. And so they brought the best and the brightest out of Jerusalem into the Babylonian empire to assimilate and to, to make the empire stronger. And some of the people he brought out were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, guys with the great names, and Daniel. And King Nebuchadnezzar, he was a very proud king. In fact, uh, one of the stories is he built a golden statue of himself and said to everyone in his empire, you have to, at this time, bow down and worship me. And of course, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they said, no, we're not going to do that. He threw them into the furnace. And at that moment, Nebuchadnezzar was amazed because God saved them. And there was a point where he recognized the, the power of God. And in fact, he made a decree saying that whoever worships this God is not to be criticized or harmed. This is a good thing. And you would have thought maybe watching that, hey, this guy's been humbled. But he hadn't yet. In the story we're going to look at more closely, he has a dream. It's years later. Daniel is one of his trusted advisors. And King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And the dream is of this, this giant tree with branches that, that reach out and give shade to all the creatures of the earth. And the tree is chopped down. It falls over. It's dead. And so he says to Daniel, I've had this dream. What is it about? And Daniel says, well, it could be a lot of things. It could be a few different things. And the king says, no, no, tell me. What is it about? And Daniel says, well, the tree is you, O king. And God is going to humble you. He's going to take you down from your throne. He is going to, he's going to cause an insanity to come upon you so that you will be humbled. But Daniel says, listen, there's hope. If you were to humble yourself, if you would turn from your prideful, sinful ways, be merciful and kind, then maybe this won't happen. And so amazingly, Nebuchadnezzar, he does that. For one year, he, he changes his behavior. And again, if you were there, if you'd heard what Daniel said, and you'd saw the king, he was acting differently, you would think, man, this guy's been humbled. This is amazing. But God knew his heart. He wasn't yet at a point of true humility. We know this because after a year, he says this. He's up on the t- one of his rooftops looking out over his kingdom and here's what he says. Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? That's not a good thing to say as a king. Look what happens. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar. To you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you and you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. You see the proclamation of God. You see the purpose of it. The purpose of his public humiliation is that he would recognize who God is truly to him. And to everyone on earth that he is sovereign, he is in charge, and that we are to humble himself before him. And and this is what happens. Nebuchadnezzar roams the fields like like a wild ox. He eats grass. I'm not sure. The servants kind of watch him, make sure he doesn't hurt himself. No one hurts him. But for seven years, he does this. That's That's a long time. Seven years. At the end of that, just like God said, uh, he restores his reason, restores his kingdom. And now look at the words of Nebuchadnezzar. After all that, verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. 
you see that the change in his heart, that he came to the point of actually realizing who God is, that he recognized his pride. Now, when you read a story like this, it seems, I mean, it seems really fantastic, doesn't it? It's like a fairy tale or a myth. I mean, how is it that this actually applies to us? Does this really demonstrate the ways of God? And the answer is yes. Nebuchadnezzar isn't just some guy, some made up, you know, Greek God. He, he is in the annals of history. King Nebuchadnezzar was ruler of Babylon and this actually happened in his life. And it happened for a purpose. God was being merciful to Nebuchadnezzar to humble him to the point of gaining the proper perspective about himself and about God. And this is the pattern of God's activity all throughout history. Even in our lives right now, God confronts us in our sin so that we might know him, so that we might receive the mercy that he has to offer. This is the the pattern of God. In fact, the confrontation itself is the mercy of God. I remember uh, a guy that I met, uh, we got to know him on the North Shore. We were doing ministry over there. He was in our community group. And he told me the story of how he was humbled by God. We were talking about something and he said, there's a story I have to tell you, Matt. He said, um, uh, he was from the UK and uh, he and his wife and his family lived there. They immigrated. But when they were back there, there was a time in his life, he said, where things were very, very difficult. Uh, Almost every area of his life, it seemed like there was a challenge. He had his own business. Things weren't going well there. At home, there were challenges. Uh, Their living situation was difficult. And he said, um, he didn't realize it, but but what was happening is he was, his frustration was growing. He was a believer, but, but he was getting angry. He was getting really frustrated at the difficulties at life that didn't seem fair. And he was getting angry, not just at the, the circumstances of his life, but actually at God himself. And he said, at one point, Matt, my anger just bubbled over and I challenged God. As I was driving, I said, God, fine. If you want to do this, fine, bring it on. I'm ready. And as he was telling me the story, he looked me in the eyes. He said, Matt, he said, don't ever pray that prayer. I said, why? What happened? Did it get worse? He said, it got so much worse. I said, what happened? He said, over the next few days, circumstantially, things just began to happen. The car would break down. He, he got to the point where he was literally on his knees. He was broken before the Lord. He recognized his weakness and he repented. He said, I I just, I repented for my pride. I turned to God and received his grace and mercy in a way that I had never before. And he said that was a turning point in his life where he truly understood who he was in relationship to God. Now, some of you might be thinking, you know, Matt, you're talking about mercy, but it sort of seems like God just wants to pull the rug out from under us every now and again. Like God's not happy until we're on our knees, submitting. And that doesn't sound like a good thing. That sounds like oppression. It sounds like someone who just wants to keep us under their thumb. And my response would be that, that in saying that, I think there's a point that's being missed. In fact, I think there's two points that are being missed. Number one, pain, discomfort, is not always destructive. It's not always a bad thing. We don't like the feeling of being uh, caught in our pride. We use that language, oh, it hurts my pride when that happens. It feels uncomfortable for us to be brought low. But situations of discomfort are sometimes very, very helpful. Think of surgery. That is a situation of extreme discomfort where you allow someone to lay you on a hospital bed and to take a very sharp knife, the sharpest they can find, and cut through your healthy flesh. Why do they do that? Because there's something in there they need to get at. I mean, the pain is so great, they have to anesthetize you. You would never allow someone to do this normally, but there's a tumor inside you or a blocked artery. And so they inflict pain so that they might give you life. 
They can do necessary surgery. It's in that, that vein that God is working. That there is a, a, a tumor, a, a, a cancer of, of sin and, and self-aggrandizement that you're just filled with your, your own self that there's no room for him and he needs to root it out. And so yes, it is painful. Yes, it is difficult, but it is gracious. It is loving. This is his intention. Just like in surgery, they want to bring life. God's business is one of bringing life, not just physical life, but spiritual life, eternal life. Look at what it says in Luke. This is the same uh, idea, kind of encapsulated. Luke 14, 11, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. See, God's intention is not to keep us low, but to raise us up. In fact, he wants to raise us up higher than we could ever reach on our own into the very heights of heaven, but he can't do that if we're consumed with ourselves. And so here's his work. This is the, the amazing thing about the kingdom of God, right? In, in, the, in the ways of, of earth, the, the rich get richer and the, the powerful get even more powerful, but in the kingdom of God, those who bring themselves low, they are raised up even higher. And this has been always God's plan. This is the rhythm that he has in his interaction with human beings. Uh, The very last verse of our passage, verse 55, makes it clear that God has always been doing this. He talks about, it's a reference to Abraham. Uh, This is the verse. It says, as he spoke to our fathers. So all of that is just as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. See, Abraham wasn't originally a believer. And yet God was merciful. He was a pagan. God drew him out called him out, and God promised amazing things to him, said he would be the father of many nations, and said that through his offspring, the entire world would be blessed. Now, Abraham didn't know it at the time, but God was speaking about one offspring in particular, the Messiah, the Savior, Jesus, who would finally and fully redeem God's people from their sin. This also was what Mary is singing about. Remember the first couple of verses? She said, Her spirit rejoices in God my Savior and that he has done great things for her. Again, these are not just words she chose because they sound good. She knows what God is up to. She understands that the child inside her is the promised one, the one who would save the world from their sins. And that's the second reason why we need to understand God correctly in his confrontation. It's not that he wants to bring us low. In fact, he brings us low to raise us up. But also, God doesn't just call us to humility. He leads the way. In Mary's womb at that moment, there is a, I think a zygote is the right term. There is a zygote that contains the infinity of God. That that the Son of God has condensed himself to be a few cells so that he might grow and be born as a human being. The, the, The grandeur of that amount of humility that the one who created her and created everything would humble himself to the point of being born as a child. Look at these verses. Uh, We were in these a few weeks ago in Philippians. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This is the the purpose of God, the activity of God in this moment, that he is humbling himself so that he might live a life, that Jesus could live the life that we could never live. And then he could go to the cross and, and take the death that each of us deserves. In Mary's womb, there is the greatest demonstration of mercy that we could ever know. And Mary herself 
understanding what God has done. Now, she doesn't know all the details, but she knows who her God is. She knows what he's up to, and so she sings and praises. And the truth of the matter is that God doesn't want to keep us low. He wants to bring us humble so that he might lift us up to the heights where he is. Look again at the word of God. Isaiah 57, 15 says this, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Mary's song is one of such, such amazing depth that she would, she would see the hand of her God at work in her own life, that she would know his character and that at this moment of just extreme difficulty, she would praise him for what he is doing. And the blessing of it is not just for her and her life, but it's for all of us. That, that as we read it, as we contemplate what's being sung, and, and just that she is able to sing it, the mercy of God is more fully revealed because through her there will be a child who will atone for our sins and will make a way for us to have life eternal. And out of this, as we close, two things I think that would be helpful for us to think about this week. Number one, if you have been in a season where you have felt confronted by God, where whatever it is, circumstances, it's just, it's a difficult time. And in your own heart, you felt a burgeoning frustration and anger. I wonder if it might be God at work in a merciful way. Could it be that there's, there's a greater depth of, of knowledge that God wants you to have about him, that he wants to reveal you, uh, reveal himself to you even more And so it's through the confrontation, through the difficulty, that he is making himself known. Secondly, this is a season where we have the opportunity to reflect on the mercies of God. We've seen it here in our text, and we've seen the greatest display of it in in the coming of the Son. But let us not also move past this quickly. Let's take some time to reflect on the mercies of God and look for them in our lives. If you know Jesus, you have received the greatest mercy. But God is at work in all areas of our life. And we have an opportunity like Mary to genuinely worship him for all that he is doing. And if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord, my hope is that as we've dug into his word, you've come to know God a little more and that perhaps there are questions or longings in your heart. We would love to talk to you more about that after. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we are thankful for your word. Thankful God for the revelation that we we can know you. We can genuinely celebrate this Christmas season because of who you are and because of what you've done. I pray, Lord, for each one of us here, God, would you graciously and mercifully confront us in our pride? Lord, would you not allow us to continue on blindly, but instead reveal to us those areas where we are thinking too much of ourselves and not enough of you? And Lord, would you help us also to see the way in which the coming of your son, Jesus, you coming here, is the greatest display of mercy and one that we can receive by faith. Help us, Lord, to, to rejoice this Christmas season as Mary did, with genuine hearts of worship, humbly trusting in you for all that you've done. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.